Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and thanks for listening to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, David Gottlieb. Ken Krimstein is an author, cartoonist, and educator whose work has appeared in The New Yorker, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, and The Chicago Tribune. The author of The Three Escapes of Hannah Arendt and Kvetch as Kvetch Can, Jewish Cartoons, Ken Krimstein has a singular talent for capturing the essence of biographical writing with haunting and sometimes hilarious illustrations, illustrations that take us into other worlds and deep into the minds and hearts of the remarkable individuals within them. In When I Grow Up, The Lost Autobiographies of Six Yiddish Teenagers, published by Bloomsbury in 2021, Krimstein has created what might be called a singularly evocative work of post-memory. His illustrations illuminate the long-lost autobiographies of six teenagers written on the precipice of World War II in a Yiddish world that would soon be utterly destroyed. As with his work on Hannah Arendt, Krimstein's When I Grow Up submerges us in a world of ideas and passions that we had thought were extinct but which he makes newly immediate. The result is a work that shows teenagers doing what they've always done, struggling to understand the world, to make meaning, and to find an outlet for their passions. In the process, we find ourselves in their world, and our world is utterly changed. Ken Krimstein joins me today to talk about this remarkable book. Ken, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So, uh, Ken, first, tell me what you consider yourself. Are you... um, an artist, an illustrator, a cartoonist, a, 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 a historian, a storyteller. When you describe yourself to people, how do you describe yourself? It's usually um, kind of different every time, but I, you know, I know that we've got the podcast, so I was thinking about it. And I went back to uh, something that I had discovered when I was doing my Hannah Rent book, something that Walter Benjamin, one of the great uh, inspirations for Hannah talked about, maybe I'm a chronicler. I, 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 you know, um, I, I'm a story, definitely a storyteller and, uh, and I, a historian because this is nonfiction, but I'm trying to bring the past alive in a fresh way and in a true way. So it's like a chronicle perhaps. That's really interesting. And you know, when I was preparing to speak with you, uh, I went on your website and I looked at your cartoons, which definitely are stories, but they take up 
really the absurdities of modern life, things like, you know, commuting, hot air balloons, the absurdly overheated real estate market, and of course, relationships. But your books have focused on Jewish themes. And it's interesting that you've illustrated in both the Hannah Arendt book and in, and in this, When I Grow Up, you've illustrated very complex and deeply felt biographical writing. Could you tell me a little bit about what draws you to that kind of project? Yes. I mean, I am very, very interested in people, in time, and in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I am a cartoonist, and as you say, I do sometimes uh, observational gag cartoons, but those are stories, too, that talk about moments in life that are true. Uh, but right. I also have a huge interest in history. Uh, I feel I've always loved history and I've loved biography and I love cartoons. And it's funny, uh, simmering for many, many, many years, uh, I feel very lucky to have been uh, asked or to have stepped into this uh, place where I can tell stories using visuals and words to bring people to life in their time. Because I feel that, you know, uh, yes, you could say that, uh, for instance, something that I'm working on right now, you could say Albert Einstein came up with E equals MC squared. But who was the person? Why did he do it? What world did he come from? And as for the the Jewish part of it, I I just have fallen into, I call it a a middle European rabbit hole, and I Uh can't seem to get out of it. I, I find that so what has informed the things that I value in life, whether it's uh, Hollywood movies from the 1930s or uh, uh, sort of expressionist art or certain types of writing, emerges from that, that world. And then, you know, it's every book is a process of discovery, and my roots go back to what I've dubbed Yiddishuania. So it's personal, but it's also it allows me to tell stories in a way that I, that, that, that excite me and hopefully uh-huh. excite others. I did want to ask you uh, where your people come from. Yes. Well, my people come from uh, Ukraine and my people mm-hmm. come from uh, Vil- Vilna, Vilnius, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Minsk, uh, Berdichev, and then they track their little diaspora through uh, Vienna over to London, where they resided for quite a while and then skipped over to America around the turn of the century. But, you know, it's funny, I was working on this when I grow up and uh, I, I realized one thing that linked all of this area and even more, including my wife's people kind of come from Bessarabia, is Yiddish. So I, I thought the Yiddish vernacular was really the, the nation without a borders. But yeah, after I finished the right. book, my mom said, my, my bubby came from, from Vilna, and I used to go to the Vilna Stiebel in, you know, on the west side of Chicago with her when I was a little girl. Right. Wow. So, Ken, I, I wonder if, for our listeners, you would just tell us the story of this book and how it came to be. And especially, if you would, tell us how you came to be the second person in 80 years to be able to hold these stories in your hands. Yeah, it's it's like most things that happen, it was unexpected. I literally stumbled into a talk that was being given 
uh, by Yevo uh, at a local um, synagogue here near my house because they were serving, you know, rugula. Uh, but, um, you know, Jonathan Brent w- talked about these discoveries of this collection and this new this article in the New York Times. And, you know, uh, in Yevo, which I didn't really even know that much about at the time, uh, which was a very, very uh, important organization uh, in uh, Eastern Europe at that time, one of the things they did was they wanted to find out what the future of the uh, Yiddish-speaking population was going to be. So they did an ethnographic study in the 1930s before you know the war. No one knew the war was coming on. You know, you don't know that right. when you're living it. Right. And right. Um, it was, uh, and interestingly, Max Weinreich, who was the head of YIVO, um, had gotten a Rockefeller grant. I mean, I've put this all together since then and studied at, at Yale, among other places, and met some um, distinguished African-American um, anthropologists and scholars and learned about similar things that they were working on in the South. And he took this inspiration back to, to Vilna, to the capital, and said, we're going to do you know, an autobiography contest anonymous for kids, and uh, they're going to tell us the truth and we'll offer a little prize. And I could only imagine uh, the response, but he got it through. So they started fielding questionnaires, and over uh, close to 800 rolled in. Through over the, the course of how long? Uh, through the 1930s. There were three waves okay. of the competition. Uh, the mm-hmm. largest was, uh, sadly, um, 1939. And uh, so these had to be anonymous because they were wise enough to know that teenagers wouldn't really spill the beans if their parents could find out what was going on, but they right. had a, they devised a coding method so that whoever won would get 150 zlotis, which was not an insignificant amount. In any case, mm-hmm. um, they came in, uh, and the way it was being judged, and again, this is, you know, you, you get into the language, and it was, yeah. you know, you know, we are not going to give any prizes for flowery prose. We are not going to just tell us the truth, and it was daring stuff. Well, um, the very day that the prizes were to be awarded, ironically, the very day that they were to award the prize for the best, you know, autobiography, uh, September 1st, 1939, the day that the Nazis rolled into Poland and the prizes, as far as I know, were never awarded. And thus begins the odyssey of these um, documents. They're lost, they're found, they're lost, they're found. And finally, uh, some come out uh, in what the monuments men would would find in Frankfurt, where the Nazis tried to move them, mm-hmm. uh, but David Fishman wrote a book, and I interviewed, I talked to David before about called the Book Smugglers, and heroic efforts were made to save many of these documents right in in Vilna, and they were discovered, gosh, seventy five years later, uh, in a church that had become a book uh, depository under the Soviets, and they were cleaning it mm-hmm. out. And they called Yivo very quickly and said, what, what are these, you know, blue notebooks in this strange language? And the New York Times wrote about it. And the next thing I knew, um, I was uh, in, in Vilnius at the National Library where they have preserved and protected these very well with the archivists. And uh, I couldn't believe it. Um, Migle, who was uh, the assistant to Lara, there, I, I came in after having flown around the world, and uh, it was a beautiful building, beautiful air-conditioned building, and there's a little stack of these notebooks 
sitting wow. on a table. And wow. I said, are those them? And she says, yeah. And I picked it up and I flipped through it and it's beautiful penmanship. And I said, to, uh, I said, how many people, you know, cause they had just, they were just archiving them. They were just getting, how many people have, have looked at this book? And she turned to me and since 19, whatever, 39, she looked at me and she said two, you and me. I, I just, wow. I could have fallen over. It was incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So how many notebooks did you have access to and how and when did you know that this was going to be your next work? Well, you know, so the process, you know, before I went to Vilnius, I had to make sure that that I could that it was there. I mean, I was the, the moment I heard about these uh, in that talk, a light bulb, a thousand light bulbs went off in my head. I was yeah. I was yeah. looking for, um, uh, you know, a more conventional po solo person to do a biography on uh, after the Hannah Arendt thing. And then this was just like, oh, I, you know, these are incredible. They're, 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 it's discovery. Um, and very quickly, um, you know, Jonathan Brent uh, put me in touch with the archivist at Evo. There was a, uh, a, Jew, a, a Jewish librarians conference in Boston I managed to get to. And I met all the important people. And I realized that um, these things were there and they were um, and I tried to get a translator because I can't read uh, Yiddish uh, handwriting, uh, barely can right. read Yiddish printing. But, um, you know, so once all the pieces fell into place, I just knew that this was going to be a, a fascinating story. And my publisher said, just as long as these are things that have never been published before, they're brand new, they come from there, go for it. And, yeah. uh, you know... So when I went to, just to, to continue, so when I worked and I lived in Vilnius for you know about a month to because part of my process is is inhabiting the place. I want to yes. see what it was like, and I do a lot of research. But um, you know, I weren't I did, I wasn't able to get them fully translated, but I would get like a sense of who the author was because understand they're all anonymous, and I wanted to have right. the diversity. Um, because I wanted to show the breadth and diversity of this civilization. So I wanted to have urban, rural, uh, you know, uh, boys, girls, rich, mm -hmm. poor, observant. You know, I wanted to show the breadth of what I call Yiddishuanian civilization. So I got headlines and then I basically photographed them all and I got a translator. And, you know, just again, it's. They would come in the it would take uh, Ellen Cassidy, who's my translator, who's quite a, a good translator and great writer, um, would take her, you know, three to four weeks to translate each one. And then I would get them, you know, and I would open them up. And one was more astonishing to me than the next. I mean, they were just just beautiful, true stories. They really are, you know, so heartfelt and also so recognizable for their adolescent fiery passion, you know? Yeah. And the other thing that strikes me about the stories and about your illustrations, it, it was so clear to me that you must have spent time uh, in Vilnius because your illustrations really bring us down the streets of that world. Uh, but I, I also want to be clear, are there photos attached to the entries because you're illustrations of the faces are so human and immediate it's as if 
the kids are speaking to us? Were there photos? Well, that's a that's a really good question. Um, with the exception of one uh, in the book, who we who kind of broke the rules, uh, and we found we find out who we who she was. No, there were not photos. Um, uh, Yevo was very, very uh, determined to say there can be no pictures, there can be no names, don't even mention the town you're in, so on and so forth. So uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, the visual part of, of the research, because what I'm doing as a, as a verbal visual chronicler or whatever, um, it's a kind of a micro history in a way um, where I'm looking for little nuances, little details of the life. And, um, and the visual component is very important. So I inhabited, you know, as I said, Vilnius for a long time. And I, I used actually Lucy Davidovich did a book com- called From This Place in Time about the, yes. the, the little moment when she was there actually in 39, the same time when they were working on this. And in the, in the uh, front, you know, inside of the cover of the book is an old map of Vilnius that she had drawn, of Vilna. So I used that and I followed the old map and I went to all the places and I, I just did paintings and I did drawings and I looked at the life. Now, as for the faces, you know, um, I had to get into each. So like when you're doing a biography, or at least what I am, I want to understand the character of the person. So I had to understand, you know, one of them is a uh, a folk singer whose whose parent whose father runs off with a non-Jewish woman and the drinking problems and this and that and she finds solace in music and so i learned about and she plays mandolin and yeah. uh, that was big so i learned about music in that part of the world and mandolin orchestras and i look at pictures of people who play the mandolin of her age from that part of the world i mean they're due to the there's been a lot of online material from uh, Jewish Gen and from various things where a lot of photographs in YIVO there and here, I had to just keep uh, accumulating a lot of imagery to inspire me. What would a girl who felt like that be like? There's another girl who's, who came from a, a richer family and her father was a kosher butcher and there were eight daughters in the family. And he passes away and she's a proto yes. a proto feminist she she wants yes. to stand and say kaddish and she says it and and the, and the, and the, and the uh, the men from the synagogue run up and say no you can't do that you know god doesn't listen to women and so i had to read about uh, you know uh, jewish women and liberation in in the observant community and i had what would a what would a, a 19 year old of that ilk in that part of the world look like. And so, you know, and the amazing thing was, as I do the photo research, one of the things that was incredible is the barriers start to break down. The, the yes. people, the people in, in, in Kovno look like the people um, in the Bronx, you know, and this, and yeah. they're wearing the same fashions and they're, ha- they're using the same hairdos and they're watching the same movies. And this is, this to me was opening up a world that I just didn't, I hadn't, I had no idea. And, and uh, so the visual part of it, yes, it's extremely important. And, you know, luckily there is a lot of uh, resource material out there. And so for instance, in one of the situations, um, a kid uh, says I had my bar mitzvah and um, 
in the day, uh, you know, the parent, my parents had a party and they invited everyone in town. But at night, we played records and danced all night. And I could sort of remember, yeah. you know, my bar mitzvah and whatever. But I wondered what did record players look like then, and what? So I got, you know, I found them. That wind up, you know, what, what kind of record player existed in Vilna at that time? So for me, right. that visual research is as important as the other kind. It's so interesting. Uh, this surfaces lots of other questions and observations, one of which is you have a beautiful illustration of an Underwood typewriter with Yiddish letters on it Yes, uh, that one of the authors is using. So it's clear that you researched all kinds of objects and, and what these objects and what the clothing and what the records tell us is that even though this is a vanished world, it's really a, a world that's recognizable, immediately recognizable and tangible uh, to most of us, because you've captured a place and a time when modernity is colliding with uh, tradition. And teenagers are super sensitive to the inconsistencies and uh, hypocrisies um, between tradition and change. And the kids who've written these things are recognizable to us as ourselves or as or as kids that we might have been who are both trying to embrace and also rejecting the world that their elders are handing them. Yes. I mean, it, it, it's a very definition of a generation gap um, that I kind of remember from my, you know, when I was a kid hearing about it and we think w there was a generation gap in the seventies or whatever. I mean, think about these kids in the twenties and thirties in this world where you have, you know, airplanes, you know, radio, movies, electric light, you know, atomic energy, whatever. And it's the consistency of the fact. I mean, I, you look for inspiration in so many places, or I do when I'm diving into the research and, you know, and I have to lean a little bit into my own life to make these stories, to understand who these, the passions of these kids are, because I'm not doing I'm not doing what Max, Max Weinreich wanted to do. He wanted to do an ethnographic uh -huh. study. I'm using this as evidence, as as inspiration. Like, uh, you know, I'm misusing, if you will, uh, what he wanted to do to allow a window in. So, you know, teens will make their own fun and also life narratives. And I talked to um, a professor at Northwestern who's done a lot on like uh, – Dan McAdams done a lot on like pers personal uh, narratives and and how we can learn from that. And even the thing mm -hmm. about autobiographies is even the mistakes are valid, you know. And yes, and I right. I loved that about it. And um, the other thing that really struck me in this narrative was um, as as an artist and as a writer and as as a historian and as a human, I I think the Holocaust is just beyond my you know, I, I mean, it's beyond anything that I could possibly ever attempt, you know, in, an, in a head on way. But this moment of looking at it before, as I say, you know, 9, 10, 2001 in New York, you know, as opposed yes, to exactly. is like, yeah. oh, so these are people, you know, these yeah, are just right. teens. And the wonderful thing about teens and, you know, I've raised some teens. I was a teen. Um, yeah, you're right. They're, 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 they're gloriously intelligent and massively ignorant at the same time. What a wonderful, uh, subject to draw to, you know, to absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I'm a scholar 
who focuses on issues of memory. And I'm interested in how Judaism hammers home the imperative to remember, which includes taking to heart and commemorating events, places and times at which we were not, strictly speaking, present. Uh, We're to act as if we were. We're to believe in a sense as if we were, but we weren't. And this, your work, when I grow up, strikes me as a very Jewish work in that it causes us to do exactly this very Jewish, really very human thing, which is it brings us to a place that most of us have never been, that was destroyed before we could ever have been there, at least in that iteration. And it makes all these individual stories into one story, and it implants the story in us in a, as a memory. And Marianne Hirsch says that we are the generation of post-memory, that we're beyond the immediate reach of these experiences, but that we still bear them in a way, and we still bear responsibility for them. Do you experience these stories in this way? In other words, how has this changed you? And how is it, do you think, going to affect your work going forward? Well, that's, yes, the, it has absolutely changed me. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's affected me very, very deeply. Um, I mean, I, uh, I got to know each of these, these people. Um, and, you know, I pray that through human ingenuity, uh, they survived, you know, they were anonymous, so we don't know. Um, you know, it's interesting when you talk, when you were talking about that, it reminded me of a little bit of, you know, some of the things that Elie Wiesel, you know, talks about bearing witness. And even if you, you can't, and, you know, I, uh, I was lucky enough to be able to t- even talk to Ariel Berger, who had been the student of Elie Wiesel. And, you know, yeah. and I saw Wiesel speak a few times. Um, and I just think that, you know, I was very, very lucky, very privileged to, to have access to this and to be able to, to kind of in my own way, yes, bring this, this world. And it's very poignant. Also, you know, uh, they don't, they don't have names. We don't know their names for the most part, but they're people. Right. And in a way their names are the entire, um, length of their autobiography. And by the way, they were supposed to be limited to, you know, 15 pages. And one of them that came in at over a hundred pages, I couldn't fit it in, but that was wow. their name. He couldn't say his name, but he yeah. wrote, he wrote it. Right. Um, so yeah, I think, um, it, 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 it struck me very, very deeply. And I felt that, you know, bringing this forth, um, as something for other people to, to experience is, you know, uh, that's what history I, I, I hope can do. It can give us a, a, a window into a, a, another time that's true and can inform us because this seemed to me to be a hole in history a little bit. I mean, you know, personally, yes. I kind of, and I, you know, I knew a little bit about sort of the, the image of, you know, w- with all due respect, I think Sholem Aleichem is like one of the greatest geniuses of all time, but, you know, maybe that kind of cliched image we have of, uh, of the shtetl life. And on the other hand, the horrible pictures, you know, but what happened in between, you know, and and, and it was vital and vibrant and real and diverse. You know, it's interesting because the world that you depict has lots of boundaries, but they're blurred. They're becoming blurry. And, and the boundaries, you know, this is a hard work to sort of, um, 
characterize or categorize like your work on Hannah Arendt. It's it lives between written and visual culture, between history and memory, and between I would even say biography and philosophy, just to mention a few. Now you do mention though, and I think this is the genre that it falls into, that it's a work of nonfiction graphic narrative. I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about what that genre is like and and what sort of works influenced you and helped you become the kind of chronicler that you are. Thank you. Yes. Well, it's a, it's a terribly exciting area um, to work in. I just finished reading uh, Dirk Beckdorf wrote a great book about Kent state uh, Mm. that came out um, I think last year in 2021. And, um, and of course, you know, we have the first person memoiristic one, which is, you know, mouse by Spiegelman, which is, you know, really defined the category in, if you will, in, in many ways. But um, I actually, you know, have done a lot of uh, deep thinking about this. And I love, you know, it's telling, yeah, it's telling stories that are based on real things and definitions are, 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 are troubling. I'm, you know, I just try and make it as honest as I can. I don't try to put fake stuff in there because it, it yeah. somehow when you put something fake in it and I don't I know you write too and you know somehow when you're doing something maybe not fake but you fudge it or something it's less yes, than right and when you put I, something yes. true in if you get the phone right it's better I don't know why that is it just <laughs> it just is so yeah. but um so I was actually you know and I was thinking about this I was very inspired again by um woman that people do not know enough about. And I had to learn about her. I didn't even know she existed. Her name is Roberta Strauss. Her married name is Roberta Strauss Freulicht. And she was the editor of Classics Comics in the 1950s and 1960s. And she was also a historian. And she also was a pretty radical, she ended her career as a pretty radical writer about the Jewish people with some controversy. I knew nothing of this. But I uh-huh. used to read, I got from my great uncle, you know, the classics comic version of, you know, the Civil War or World War II. And that's what they were doing. They yes. were trying to tell stories in a non-hokey way. In fact, Strauss uh, worked in a lot of very progressive stuff when she could into those stories. And I guess it was just, you know, my friends were all kind of, you know, really into the the men in tights type stuff. But and, yeah, and I, you know, of course, I liked that, and I liked Mad Magazine, and I liked all that. But somehow, seeing uh, the Crusades, if you will, the Children's Crusade depicted in pictures with some historical accuracy, um, and and I've read about Strauss's process, and they were very, very particular in getting all the uniforms and stuff right. I think I've carried mm-hmm. that with me my whole life, and I feel really, really glad. Maybe you know that's what nonfiction graphic narrative to me. I mean, obviously it goes it goes on and on. There are many people who do it, but I think that was the seed of it for me. Right. You know, I, I feel it would be remiss for us not to talk briefly as we're conducting this interview. Uh, Russia's war in Ukraine is in its fourth week, and we're watching now in a way that we've never really been able to before. Um, We're watching in real time as a civilization that in many respects looks a lot like the civilization that you depict, that in fact covers some of the very area that you call Yiddishuania is being destroyed. Uh, And I, it's, it's 
searingly painful, uh, I would think, for any sentient human being to watch this happening. And I'm wondering, uh, as you reflect on what you saw in the world, what you saw in Vilnius in terms of what was still immediate and vibrant and there that people from 19, the 1930s could have recognized and what is utterly changed? Was the past sort of alive before you? Yeah, I mean, you bring up a couple of big topics. I mean, obviously, the 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 idea of what's going on in the Ukraine now is um, it resonates. I, 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 you know, I can't stop thinking about teenagers there now and what they're going through and the stories that they have. And I wonder if they're getting out now in TikTok or social media or yes, whatever. Right. You know, I mean, right. uh, you know, if I spoke the language, uh, I hope there are people there chronicling it. You know, for us because. Um, I love that teenage point of point of view, and I I, w- I hope that everybody there is is surviving and safe because you know it, it, yeah the the pointlessness and the waste of it is come come so so to the front you know and I just see the disconnect between uh, you know men you know, in offices, in remote places, taking other anonymous men and having them go kill other anonymous and destroy other anonymous people. It seems so pointless. Um, Vilnius, you know, you look for traces and tracks. Um, It it was pretty much intact, central Vilnius. Um, The uh, Jewish center, unfortunately, the great synagogue uh, is no longer there. Many of the areas in what they call the Schulhoif, um, it, the Nazis actually weren't able to destroy it. It was so great. The Russians pulled it down. I mean, and you look for these uh-huh. ironies, um, it, but the streets and the winding streets and the little buildings, and, you know, I'm a little bit of a ask for, for forgiveness, not permission when I'm, uh-huh. when I'm, when I'm researching. And if a door was open into a courtyard, you know, I'd walk in and, and there's, there's tracks and traces. You can still see even in some unexpected areas, uh, Yiddish and Polish writing, uh, you know, on walls and, and, um, and it, it, it strikes me how much vibrancy of culture was in such a small space. Uh, it just, it just mm. was incredible to me. So yeah, you, uh, I think if somebody from the 19, you know, whatever from that era came there, they probably would recognize many of the houses, um, I don't think they'd really know what to do with the sort of Maseratis racing through the streets and the, the KFCs or whatever they have. But Wow. Yeah. Yeah. But they'd know where they were. Oh, they'd know where they were. I mean, you know, um, the light still slants the same way. The hill is still there. Yeah. There are some, yeah. you know, you have, you know, historical revisionism in that part of the world is very, is a very, very vital issue. And, um, they're good guys and bad guys in every place. Um, as of today, you know, uh, I think that the good guys are in control in, in Vilnius. They're, 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 they're taking care of these documents and they're aware of them. But, you know, that part of the world, it can change very, very quickly. Yes, it definitely seems to be the case. Uh, I want to issue a spoiler alert uh, to our listeners before this next question. But I, I do have to ask it so that they can hear the answer. And that is, do we know what became of any of the six of the teenagers whose autobiographies you've illustrated? Yes. 
We do. Um, we know for sure one survived. And the story of Beba Epstein is a story within a story within a story here that absolutely blew me away. And it, uh, to use a, a technical term, um, and, uh, <laughs> and, it, and it, it really impressed a lot of other people because the, the saga of this. So when these were discovered, um, the New York Times, Joe Berger uh, wrote an article about it, and they put a picture uh, of sec- you know, the C-section of the Times in 2017. And there's this very intense looking um, girl on the cover of an autobiography. And, you know, you can just feel the collective hearts breaking. I mean, this is, this is, mm-hmm. this is terrible. And then they get a call that that's my mom. What? That's, that's oh my, my mom. God. She survived. And it turns out that yes, one person we know for sure, uh, survived Beba Epstein and her son, I, who I connected with very early, uh, Michael Leventhal, you know, very encouraging about trying to tell the story and sharing the information on her. So we know for sure that Beba and her story is is just it, it, it has wheels within wheels uh, that I'll leave a little bit of uh, unspoiled for your for your okay. listeners. But um, so but I will say that at the very end, Michael, you know, sent me a picture of Beba with her grandkids and his kids. And I, I had to include that. And I kind of, you know, you'd, one doesn't want to, you know, get too particular, but I kind of thought like, see, see there, yeah, see there, yeah. humanity will yeah. survive. Now the others, you know, I try, I've, we've tried, um, you know, there were, we know, you know, sometimes they didn't always hew to the rules and in, in one of the, um, uh, she she refers to one of the girls really falls for this kind of very handsome rich guy and she's sort of you know she's kind of on the wrong side of the tracks and she wants to get into the fancy school be- and one of the reasons is because Herschel Goldmacher um who walks around you know in you know chino pants with a yeah. in, in their teens and so i tried <laughs> finding Herschel Goldmachers from that part of the world and i looked and i looked and i looked and you know it's it, it, the 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 trail gets very very thin there, but we yeah. know for sure at least one made it. And as I say, I hope others. I hope they all did somehow. That's really beautiful. Can you uh, just sort of wrap up our conversation by telling us what you're working on next? Yeah. Yes, I um. So I l- luckily have fallen found this way of telling these chronicles. I think I'll use that term with pictures and mm-hmm. words to bring aspects of history alive that are maybe not as well known and, and excite me. So um, one thing led to another, and I found out about the fact that Albert Einstein, who you know most of your listeners probably know who he is, uh, right. <laughs> and Franz Kafka um, actually rubbed shoulders with each other in Prague uh, in 1911 um, in 1912. And um, they arrived in uh, Einstein arrives in Prague as a half Einstein. I mean, he, he hadn't completed the theory of general re- relativity and a lot of people didn't like him and his marriage was on the rocks and he was broke. He needed money. And Kafka was still, you know, basically working the insurance. And by the time yeah. Einstein leaves in the summer of July uh, of 1912, Einstein's basically got the outlines of his greatest theory, the general theory of relativity, and Kafka's got the outlines of his first masterpiece, The Judgment. So something happened. So that's what, yeah, I was in Prague doing the same sort of thing. And uh, that's what I'm working on now. And uh, 
Uh, I'm at the at this moment. It's called Einstein and Kafka Land because talk about down a rabbit hole. So that's yeah. what I'm working on now. That's very exciting, and uh, I, for one, I know cannot wait uh, to see, read, and that book and dive into that world. Thank you. My guest today has been the author and illustrator illustrator Ken Crimstein. And we've been talking about his latest work, When I Grow Up, The Lost Autobiographies of Six Yiddish Teenagers, published by Bloomsbury Press in 2021. I'd also like to point out that Ken Crimstein will be appearing at Spertus Institute for Jewish Learning and Leadership in Chicago, where, full disclosure, I am the Director of Jewish Studies, on the evening of Monday, June 13th at 7 p.m. Central, in Voices, Rescued Stories Brought to Life, uh, Ken Crimstein will discuss When I Grow Up, as well as other stories he's brought to life. The event will be live in person and online. And for more information, uh, please visit Spertus, that's S-P-E-R-T-U-S dot E-D-U. Ken, I want to thank you so much for joining me today on New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank you very much. It's been a great conversation.